what do they say? Third time's a charm. More like 30. Let's see if you can get it right this time. Hey, it's Sachit, and this is The Conscious Creator Show. Through exclusive interviews with authors, actors, entrepreneurs, musicians, other podcasters, and all kinds of creators, we'll explore how to make a life through your art without selling your soul. The creative side of business and the business side of being a creator, if you will. We've got a host of amazing partners like Brain.fm and other amazing companies. So head on over to creators.show, that's C-R-E-A-T-O-R-S dot show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and more. Enjoy the show. If you have someone who's 50 plus, who's been doing this longer than the person saying the pipeline excuse, but they're still not in a leadership role, then you have to understand that it's not the pipeline, it's the pipe. It's the problem itself. It's the institution itself. This is probably one of my favorite and most important quotes from this episode from our guest, Arlen Hamilton. And especially given the times that we're in, it is probably one of the most important episodes that we've published. Arlen built a venture capital fund from the ground up while homeless. She is the founder and managing partner of Backstage Capital, a fund that is dedicated to minimizing funding disparities in tech by investing in high potential founders who are people of color, women, and or LGBT. Started from scratch in 2015, Backstage has now raised more than 10 million and invested in more than 130 startup companies led by, and I love this phrase, instead of underrepresented, underestimated founders. In 2018, Arlen co-founded Backstage Studio, which launched four accelerator programs for underestimated founders in Detroit, LA, Philadelphia, and London. Arlen was also featured on the cover of Fast Company Magazine in October 2018 as the first Black women non-celebrity to do so. In her new book, It's About Damn Time, was released on Penguin Random House's business imprint, Currency, in May 2020. And if you're actually listening to this on your podcast player, what I would recommend is go to Audible, buy the book. It is one of my favorite books I've read this year and just so good and so inspirational. So I would recommend go buy the book and maybe then come back and listen to the podcast. Um, some of the stuff that we cover in this interview is how she's dealing with quarantine during this pandemic and how it's taken a certain amount of discipline, how they changed the vernacular from underrepresented to underestimated, how Arlen believes that anyone who says lack of diversity in venture capital is simply a pipeline problem is lying to themselves, how there are many roles you can take in elevating underestimated groups, even if you aren't a founder. An amazing story from South by Southwest where she was on a panel as a judge, and which wasn't diverse enough, and she basically pulled someone from the crowd so that more people and Black women were represented. And just, just amazing stories from her work in music, her work funding founders, some of her found favorite founder stories. And this was just such a special episode to record. And we recorded this a month ago. And obviously, the world is just going through so much pain right now. And in these times, I think Arlen brings a message of hope, a message of resilience, and a message of betting on people who deserve to be bet on. So... Please, please, please listen to this whole episode and get her book. It's about damn time. And without further ado, here's Arlen. Arlen, thank you so much for joining us. I am so excited to do this interview. The book, obviously, I just wanted to share show here is, oh, one's not working, is It's About Damn, damn Time. And I want to share with you, I actually was like feeling kind of anxious today morning. 
So basically, I was walking around and pacing around uh, in a park near me, listening to the confidence chapter. So first of all, thank you for creating such an amazing book. Thank you. Thank um, you for getting it and for listening to it. Yeah. How do you like the uh, audio version? That was a lot of fun to record. I'm a big audio person myself, um, so it was really good. I basically have been powering through audiobooks, and I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, cool. Awesome. So, so to start with, and, and I actually like, uh, I, was, I was listening to your interview with Mark Cuban right yesterday. With everything going on, how are you feeling with just everything happening right now? We're obviously recording this with COVID and everything happening. And yeah, I just want to start with that. Yeah, it's uh, it's uncertain. I think that's the hardest part. But I've gotten into a routine now. I'm on uh, week 10 of being isolated. I've only been out of my home once in 10 weeks to get a prescription. So it's uh, there's a certain discipline that is set in and a certain routine, which can be quite boring, but also can be comforting in some way. So I feel comforted by that. I, at the same time, <laughs> terrified of our leadership in the United States right now and worried about what happens next, but always an optimist, forever an optimist. I love that. And um, it was really interesting to see, um, even in the book, that with everything that you went through, there's just this like tone of optimism that's always there. So one thing I wanted to really ask you about is, um, and that tone of optimism came through in your story of how you started Backstage Capital. And obviously you've now invested in 120 plus companies helping underrepresented founders. I was curious um, that when you talk to like other VCs or people, what do most people not understand about being a founder from underrepresented groups? Most of them don't understand that we're not talking about being anything less than. We're not talking about someone who needs to be treated with sort of kids gloves or like as a charity where it's like a, it's just an insult that has been placed upon us that we are considered that. And I, I do mean that even with people who have what I believe are the best intentions, it's mm -hmm. like their voice changes <laughs> even when they start talking about underrepresented. That's why we changed underrepresented in our vernacular to underestimated because we say underrepresented only rarely now, just because Whenever I would say I'm investing in underrepresented founders, the complete energy in the room would shift. I would go out to speak when I would speak uh, at events. And if it wasn't a room full of people who already knew me or backstage, and which is, happens often, and they said, okay, they, they did my bio and they're just like, you know, she invests in underrepresented founders, you would see half of the room clear out because they just thought, okay, here comes the HR portion. Here comes the, the portion that has nothing to do with me. And that is a huge, huge misconception. There is just absolute value that has not been understood for so long. And it's starting to happen, though. But I would say that's the biggest misconception about who I invest in, who I am, who we are as a group. Oh, I love that. And I think one of the things also that, and it's also on your side, is like people usually say it's like a pipeline problem, right? I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts on that? Because that's sort of like the criticism that they always hear. Oh, it's because it's a pipeline problem. Yeah, I think I think that was a a poor excuse five years ago and ten years ago, and it's even worse now of an excuse because the barrier to entry is just changed. And to me, a pipeline problem is simply someone who is either lying to to other people or lying to themselves. There's one of two things that is happening. Sometimes it's both. 
but there are just too many talented people and across so many industries, roles in those industries, levels of expertise, desire to be in those roles. You can't go to a certain part of Atlanta without hitting like a dozen engineer, black engineers come, right, coming straight out of, of their class, graduating class. And then within the ecosystems already, not just the people who are just graduating or training, they're just decades and decades of experience walking around right now who are still overlooked. So you can use that excuse for only so long. But if you have someone who's 50 plus, who's been doing this longer than the person saying the excuse, but they still are not in a leadership role, then you have to understand that it's not the pipeline, it's the pipe. (laughs) It's the problem itself. It's the institution itself. So how do you change that? You start by doing what I've been doing for the past almost decade, and especially in the last five years, which is you become aware of the problem or the several problems, and you set out to to not only talk about it and evangelize about it as much as possible and set a clear path and a vision, but you execute on that. And what we've done in the backstage and what I kicked off was I said, you know, these companies exist, these founders exist. They, just like Y Combinator, and tech stars and, and any other community of entrepreneurs that started somewhere, they had to start somewhere. If you think, if you go back to Y Combinator, however many years it was now, I can't remember how many years, 12, 15, 10, I'm not sure. They started, they say this very proudly, they started in one room, they would have chili dinners on Tuesdays and they would bring people in to talk to them and they would give them $15,000 to kind of kick things off. And that evolved and evolved and evolved to what it is, the juggernaut it is today. And people like to really get super um, fascinated and, and kind of in love with the story of today. They love to talk about Airbnb today. They mm-hmm. love to talk about Dropbox today and Stripe today. These are all companies that started somewhere. And they started somewhere because they had this community of mentors, of resources, of confidence that was instilled with them in them and capital. And my thesis is you put that same equation into a, to the hands of underrepresented, underestimated founders, you might even get greater evolution from where they started. So you do, you change it by being it. You change it by getting into the mix and, and really figuring out a goal that you have. And that might, your role in that may be to be an entrepreneur who does well as an underrepresented person. That may be your role that kicks, that makes all the difference. That you can be a representative. You can make someone else aspire to be you and show them how it's done. There are many roles. Another role is to be an employee at a fast growing company led by an underrepresented person. How many times do we sit here and say, hey, if you're a white man who you feel has privilege, go out and the next job you look for, make sure that 30% of the CEOs are women or people of color. I've never heard that, but we, we, we kind of, we sort of get real uncreative when it's too complex. I'm here to tell you, I've done some complex work and it, I'm still standing. So it doesn't have to be too hard. <laughs> too difficult. Yeah. I also love the stories just in the book of the many times you took a stand. I think one I remember is at South by, forget, I think Melissa Bradley were like, we need another speaker. And then you you literally brought on another speaker to make sure different groups were represented. Well, it was Melissa who I brought on. Mm-hmm. So what happened was I went in, I went into South by, I've been to South by a few times to kind of 
actually the first time I went at, for, for tech, I was sleeping out of a car with my mom just to be there so that I could meet, hopefully meet some investors. You know, that's, I went from that to this last one I canceled before it was canceled, seven speaking engagements. So it's, it's a, a lot of difference in those, in those four or five years. But this particular year, I think it was 2017 or 18, kind of in the middle of everything where we were, we brought in dozens and dozens of our portfolio companies. We paid for their tickets. And, and so we were, we were representing, right? And I go into this event, which was put on by a great organization. Um, but I go into this event, it's like a diversity demo day at South by. And mm-hmm. I'm the only person of color at all on the, the list of judges. And I just could, I mean, there were other women, there were other people represented, other races represented, but I just felt like so, it was so odd to me. So I said, I said, with all due respect, I am not going to go and do this dance with you all if we do not have a second person of color here. So just when I said that, I, I scanned the room and I noticed that Melissa Bradley, who I had met earlier that year or in that 12 months preceding was there to observe because she was just there. And Melissa has been in this game for much longer than I have. And she's sitting in the audience and I'm like, all you had to do was just survey. All you had to do was make the extra effort. Let's go. So I asked her if she would be interested in putting her on the spot. And she said, sure, I'll help you out. You know, so she Mm -hmm. came up, we did the whole thing. It was a great line of, of entrepreneurs, really great showing. And Melissa, for one of the entrepreneurs, she just had such great insight into their industry that she was able to help us decide to have them win. <laughs> it made all the difference to have that. And you can't stop at, oh, we have one, so that's enough. We've checked the mark. Melissa's going to come from a different place than I'm going to come from. But she's a gay Black woman, but that's where the, our, our similarities end. She's going to have so much more and so much different than I have and vice versa. So I talk about... Uh, in the book, like agreeing to disagree in a different way. Like let's agree to that. We're going to have some varying opinions on this stage, not just varying like uh, among underrepresented people. Let's just white men and men have been doing that for decades. Why can't we, why can't you put three black women on a panel about AI? That's not at a black event (laughs) and have Mm -hmm. them talk about their different opinions about it. It doesn't seem like rocket science to me. Yeah, I love that because in sort of the diversity, there is still more diversity, right? Because I think sometimes what happens is when you're from, let's say, like an underrepresented group, it's almost that like you represent, it seems like you you are being asked to represent the entire group. And, and that's definitely not the case. That's right. Another thing that you had mentioned was, and I love that you mentioned this in the book, you talked about like privilege. So you talk about privilege versus entitlement. Yeah, I think that privilege is something that is a hand-me-down, that is something that you, you have usually because of who you are. So that was like, you can't help who you are or because of who you've become, <laughs> you know, like my augmented privilege. And then entitlement is where the problem is. Privilege is not bad, a bad word. Entitlement is a bad word. So if privilege is a hand-me-down, entitlement is something that you procure and you wear purposely. And it takes effort to do that. So if someone is being entitled or if you are being entitled, you're trying to be entitled. So a lot of times in those people who stood up and walked out when they heard that it was going to be about diversity, they were showing both their privilege and their entitlement by doing so. The people who stayed, who were not underrepresented, were showing their privilege and sharing their privilege. So the entitlement to me is where the, I think a lot of people 
get scared if they are, let's say you're a white man and you're, you're about to listen to 30 minutes of me. Are you listening right now? But you're about to listen to 30 minutes of me just talk about the differences and like the disparities and this and that. You might feel attacked. And this may, this may happen online where you try to say something and you get attacked for saying the wrong thing. I think what they may not understand or what you may not understand is that I am not attacking you and most people aren't. They're simply stating what is true to them and what is a reality to them. And if you can, this is such an uncomfortability among certain guys. They're like, I don't like to be called that. I don't want to be put into a put into a box like that. You can imagine what it's like to be a woman walking around in that body every day, what it's like to be a person of color every day, what it's like to be a woman of color, and so on and so forth. There's a discomfort that you are that you're talking about or reacting to that is happening for seconds while you're being called out or just not even being called out or just being just like the reality is being said. And then there is the discomfort of being the person that we're talking about. So my challenge to people who have privilege, which is everybody, but privilege when it comes to race, gender, even orientation a lot of times, is to realize that because privilege is a hand-me-down, you were given that because of where, how you were born, where you were born, who you were born as, or what you have become, that's no longer a stigma. It's okay. I have, yes, I have privilege. I have privilege, for instance, because I can speak to you right now. I have privilege because I can walk around my house. I have privilege because I am of sound mind and body today, and I hope it stays that way. That doesn't mean I'm a bad person because I have privilege. Now, if I, if I use that privilege in a bad way and I became entitled, that's where we have a problem. So that's where you should be wary of. Do you toss around entitlement? Because tossing around privilege is actually a good tool. Use that to let somebody else in with you. I love that idea of using it to like bring in other people. And, and that was definitely a, a really like common theme in the book, especially section two, where, where you talk about relationships. I love that part where you were talking about, I think when, when you were working on a concert and or selling t-shirts and you, you really cared about like how many people were involved rather than, and then sort of like the financial motivation, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, like for you, how is this reflected in the way Backstage Capital is structured as a company or operates as opposed to traditional VC? Because it's just, it, it's such a common theme in the book. Yeah, we're we're a for-profit capital firm, capitalistic firm. So we are not doing anything different as to say, well, it's okay if we have less fewer returns or, mm-hmm. or less ROI. That's not the case. What I think we do is we we optimize for ROI for our investors and for ourselves because we all have ownership. Everybody who works at backstage has ownership and and equity. And at the same time, we optimize for what is going to be the best path to ROI for our portfolio? And th- to us, that means having a more hands-on approach. It means thinking through what underrepresented, underestimated founders may have to go through when it comes to things that other people may take for granted and may not have on their platforms. It is not a, an after-school program. It is not your local community center where people are passing out checks to Black people. It mm-hmm. is... It's a misconception. I get it all the time. It is a, we have very specific strategic things in place. They may not work. I may be wrong as an investor, but I wouldn't be the first. (laughs) And that's what we're optimizing for is that ROI. So for instance, with our accelerator we we launched last year, we had 1,900 applications in five weeks. 
we had 24 spots. We gave $100,000 investments. Or we invested 100000 in each company. So it's very, very competitive. Four cities, two countries. So we started by, because your question was like, how, how do we do things a little different? Well, we started by making sure that our application process was inclusive, was welcoming, was set for success, because we knew it was going to be competitive anyway. And we wanted you to get in by merit. And sometimes when you're fighting against bias within a within an application process, that's not you getting in by merit. That's the quite opposite, mm-hmm. even though you may not think so. So our application process and then our process and letting people know that they did not get in, because of course, 1,876 people, give or take, did not get in. So that process, we had overwhelming feedback about that, that it was, if not the best, one of the best experiences when it came to applying for an uh, accelerator and being rejected. So we had people who would come up to me personally, and I know this happened to other people on the team in different cities after that, and would say very excitedly, "Ah, I was rejected from your accelerator. I was in the top 100. I was in the top 300. You know, it was sort of like this badge of honor because we kept in touch with them, because we didn't discard them, because we, we let them know that these different, these were the odds. Every step of that, I feel, that application process from even from announcement, where we told people what the odds were, we kept them informed. We just kept getting feedback left and right that it was just, there was such dignity involved in that process. And that's what we are here for. We're, we're not here to, we're not here to be like everybody else. I wouldn't have any interest in that. I wouldn't have built this if I was going to be just like everybody else, there's no interest there. Even if it meant that I was going to make a ton of money doing it their way faster, I'm going to make a ton of money doing it my way with more impact. I love that you talked about dignity. And I think there's, there's so much grace in the way you talk about how the application process was um, structured. Are there other examples of how you or Backstage are doing things differently? than what is expected? Founders appreciate? Yeah. Part of uh, one of the big differences that we've had, and and this is more common now, but earlier, there's always been a a warm introduction not needed to talk to us. So most, as a double negative, but basically most investment funds or angels, because of bandwidth, because of just their personalities, because of whatever, it's not always bad, but whatever reason, you need some sort of warm introduction. Most of to talk to them. And they also use it as a way of saying, like, if you can get a warm introduction to me and you don't have one, that me- that gives me a, a sense of your the way that you're able to hack. And, and that gives me a good sense of who you are as a founder. That's all well and good if you have, if you're within those two or three degrees to get that warm introduction. Yeah, you had to jump a few hoops, but they were very low and they were very wide. You know? So it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't as impressive as you're making it out to be. So I never wanted that to be an issue with Backstage. Again, we are optimizing for return on investment. So we are not sitting here saying, everybody come in, everybody gets a check or everybody gets a look. We're not saying that. But what we are saying is that we're not going to create some false barriers for you. We want to see the best and the brightest. We want to invest in the best companies. And so we know that they can come from anywhere and from anyone. So why would we stop ourselves from seeing that (laughs) by putting up this fake barrier of you need to know one of my mediocre friends uh, talking, you know, from the perspective of your cookie cutter investor (laughs) who's like, yeah, you got to know like one of my mediocre other friends in order to get to me. What is that really saying? I mean, just to be honest here. So we have from day one, even when I had no money, even when I had no bandwidth, even when every 
part of me needed to be about raising to get the capital to put into people. I have had where you can directly reach out to me. I've had my email address from that very first blog post I put up, Dear White Venture Capitalist. I've had my email address directly to me. When it became hundreds of inbound messages, we then set up an application process before we were an accelerator so that you could at least be seen. And we had people looking at the applications every single day, making sure that every single person was seen. We didn't get back to everybody because that's not our job, but we did look at everything. And then I had open office hours early on. And today what we have is we have, you can reach out again, you can reach anybody by going to Backstage's website, backstagecapital.com, anyone on our team, but also we have office hours where two, three, four of our team members at any given time, and these are check writers at our company that are fun, mm-hmm. Get on video to, what's the word, to kind of adapt to the situation right now. We get on video with a small group who are in the same stage company. So you apply, you let us know what stage you're in, kind of where you are, and we group people together. And we have been doing that since uh, the lockdown started and consistently, and it's just been super helpful. So this is a way that we, while we have very, we have like our dry powder is up until several months from now. We're able to keep those embers warm and keep those connections warm for you. And so it just took a little bit of common sense and a little bit of wanting the best and the brightest to reach us. It's not as difficult as some are making it, but if anybody is having trouble doing that, I'm happy to have you hire me or my team to tell you how to do it because it is a process. I love what you said about the office hours. And in some way, it reminds me of the story you tell in the book from when you were in school and. I think you mentioned like it was in the playground and you would sit in the cylinder and like ask your classmates like how they were doing and everything, right? I'm curious, like, where does that come from for you? I'm not really sure. I've, I've had to think about that with the book and with interviews. And I don't know if we can ever figure out where curiosity stems from, but mm-hmm. I've just always had it. I mean, from, from the time I can remember, which is like around four or five, I've just always asked questions like a lot of kids do. I just never stopped. <laughs> you know, I was always kicked out of class for asking too many questions. I've been asking questions. I ask questions today. I ask a million questions. It's why I also have my podcast, Your First Million, because I was like in the role that I have. I have two companies or three, if you count all three of them. I have three companies. I have all this stuff going on, a new book, but I'm so curious that I want to still learn. And so it's kind of like your story, right? Like you were doing all this stuff, talking to all these people and you're like, I still want to, I still want to like be in it and still learn. So that's why I started the podcast. That's why I um, really enjoy talking to founders and talking to people in other industries, actually. I, I love having that context as well. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, one, one of my biggest learnings has been like, if you're just talking to people in your industry, then everyone knows the same thing. But if you can take something from a different industry and bring it to yours, you're suddenly like completely innovating everything. Yeah, exactly. And sort of like on this topic of like curiosity or especially around people, one of the things I loved is like that you've worked with a lot of like entrepreneurs, but a lot of like artists in music, right? And um, with like Golden Boy and everything. I'm curious, like what are sort of the maybe like common themes you've seen across both sides in people that are are successful? Yeah, I think not just successful, but like growing into it on the journey. There's a lot that's that's similar in that touring because I was a tour coordinator, a road manager, a tour manager, talent wrangler, all sorts of different roles that were about people on tours and tours that ranged from van tours to stadium or arena was the main one. And so you've had maybe five people on the road or maybe there are 70 people on the road with you. And I was, I was always working with people. And so 
definitely see the same. Like what I've noticed is a, usually this isn't the case every time, but most times it's true. The person who is the center of attention, who makes the most money, who is paying everybody else, who has a ton of talent, all of that, usually, whether it's through music or working with entrepreneurs, is like the least main, like high maintenance person in the room. They're usually like cool and they are givers and that's how they got to where they are. And of course you have the, every once in a while you have the musician who you never want to work with again. And then you have the founder or the investor you never want to work with again. But by and large, in any group, I've noticed that it's usually that main person who has kind of the right to, lack of a better word, the right to be a little bit like, you know, they're paying everybody, they're doing all that. You're usually the ones you look to for like, yeah, they're going to be okay. I usually get the most flack from people who are don't have a lot to offer. So they have, they have to make a lot of noise. They have to cause, stir up things. They have to cause drama. They have to bring the attention to them. And it turns out to be a negative way because they're not, there's not substance behind it. And so there's a lot of ego in both lanes, lots of ego across the board when it comes to who you're working with. But if you think about it, like a musician, you go on stage, there's a musician, they have backing, some of them have backing vocalists or a band and that's like your, your executive suite, basically. Like you're the seat, let's call you the founders on the front. Or if you're a full band, that's like a Rolling Stones. Those are the co-founders. Then you have like your, your C-suite and you have like your, then you have like your techs who, there's this one tech who you won't let anybody else touch your guitar or touch your piano or touch your, your monitors for your, you know, like no one will, t- if you're a vocalist, you won't let anybody else touch your monitors because you know, this person knows you. And that's usually like your, just like your most valuable personal employee. Mm-hmm. And so you have that and you, then you have all these technicians on the road. You have all these engineers on the road. So all of that is so similar to me. You have people who, who make things happen in a business, more bank way, kind of finance way. You have people who are making things happen on the ground. You have people who swoop in who don't know anything, but they're in charge and they <laughs> mess things up. All of that. So it was super helpful to have that background. I learned a ton. There's no, I don't know any better boot camp for learning how to juggle 40 different types of people, personalities, agendas, emotional roller coasters, and stay kind of centered through it all. Because you're doing all of that on the road while moving literally on you know, some vehicle. And every day you're in a different city that you have to figure out. So that was a beautiful boot camp for working with, like going into Silicon Valley, man, that was a cakewalk. It was a cakewalk compared to trying to figure out like how to make a show happen at an arena when you have lost the drummer and you don't know where, you don't know where half of your gear is. It's half of it's in on its way to Atlanta. The other half is stuck at a, at a way toll, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. there's all kinds of stuff. I'm sure there's a whole book that I could write to compare them. The drummer and the parrot, right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Are there other, other lessons? Like, um, I guess like, so, cause, cause a lot of like in both ways, what you're doing is like really like your, your role is about like developing people, right? And then you're looking for, you mentioned like grit, determination, and tenacity. So just in terms of like, like the sort of like the commonalities, like what else do you look for and, and how do you measure it? How do you know if someone's got it? Well, there, there are a few things that I go back to. Most of it though is in the, it's in the moment. It's not, it's not something that I have a checklist. I know a lot of investors have like actual spreadsheets and that's kind of cool that, or they have like an um, interview sheet or something. And I think that's great. I think that's great for some people. It just doesn't, 
work with how I interact with people. So it's just really instinct. I used to call myself like the Simon Cowell of, of investing because I don't know what his talent is <laughs> except for, for knowing talent and seeking out and, and also connecting people. Like he was, if we go even deeper, you know, with uh, One Direction, they were all individual people. And he said, well, they should become a band. And I'm sure other people had something to do with it, but that's really what I feel like my greatest talent maybe is in connecting people. And so it's almost like if I can describe what I'm looking for, it's not interesting enough. I want someone who blows, who like blows me away and who changes that, my expectation and changes that a little bit. But I am fundamentally looking for someone who is passionate, focused, who knows their stuff. That's really, really important. There are a lot of people who want this and need this and want that, but they don't have any of the stuff. They don't have the, like my whole first chapter about becoming money and getting that information. They don't have any of that. And it's mm-hmm. not like I'm looking down on them and saying, you don't have it. I'm saying, why don't you can get it? Go get it and come back. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. Like there's no, there's no end. There's no like, oh, you lost. You didn't lose. You just haven't gotten there yet. And that, that's what I'm looking for. It's like, you've gone through those paces. You've gone through where you have, you spent so much time before you even got to me. Before you even got to me, you were building up this treasure trove of information and of value for other people. Not just for me. I don't need you to have value for me, but I want to see you have value for other people. That's so powerful. It's so powerful. And people skip it. They just go from, I have an idea and I'm going to go and raise money. No, no, there's too many people out there. There's too many people out there. There's a lot in between. And so there's a certain gumption and a certain like initiative that people take that really is attractive. And that's where it starts. And then, and then you get into like, what are they working on? What does my involvement have to do with it? Like, how can I be helpful? I just, this is not an investment I made. This is a, a charity donation I made, but it's, it's actually, since it just happened in the last 24 hours, it might be helpful to see what, it ha- what attracted me really quickly. Yeah, that would um, be amazing. Is, so it's a LGBTQI plus group at Howard University. And they're, uh, so that's like a, you know, a queer group at Howard. It's already intersectional. On top of it, so Howard is a, is a black college and it's an HBCU, which is a, a historically black uh, college or university. So you might have heard that term HBCU. Howard is one of the most well-known in D.C. And they, so they have this LGBT group, which is like, okay, now you have two things that I relate to. And on top of that, it is a group specifically for dentists who are learning dentistry at Howard. So it is so specific I love that. So think, you know, take like dismantle that and think about that. I love that it's so, it knows so much what it is and has such purpose and intention behind it. You don't start something like that on a whim. So it's that. They also, they sent me a message a few weeks ago and said, hey, will you, will you donate to us and will you help us get donations? And I said, okay, all I see on your website is that you need donations. I don't see exactly what it leads to. Help me see what it leads to. Take me on that path with you. Help me help you, right? So. Within days, they had this one sheet for me that was down to the penny of what this different amounts, these different amounts would equate to. And I shared that on Twitter, and Arlen was here on a tweet, where it's like, you know, for $500 a year, we're able to give out free toothbrushes to the homeless in, this, in our neighborhood. For this amount, we're able to give out this and that, and we're able to have these events. And like that changed the game. Like I didn't dis- disregard or discard them. I didn't say, well, you don't have it all together, so I'm not going to pay attention. What I'm saying is go back out. Bring me stuff that helps me understand what you do, helps me dream with you, helps me go from A to B, 
And I love the fact that you already have it set up and you already know who you are. So that's a great head start. And then you're also kind of appealing to me. You're, you're showing me something that this is how it's going to be impactful. So not only did I say, yeah, I'll promote it. Not only did I say, I'll donate. I donated for the entire year. I covered their entire year expenses because they, had pre- they presented themselves so well to me after they had a little couple of tweaks. And so you can take that case study really quickly and walk it back. And if they had been a company mm-hmm. that you know, had some of the same kind of things going for it and maybe even a totally different type of company, it might have had the same result. That's an amazing story. Um, and it relates so much to, I think, like what you talk about, about building that more chest of information. If you look back, let's say like maybe like over the last like one or two years, other examples of people or, or stories like that that come to mind where someone just blew you away and, and, and be curious to kind of like this one, like work backwards into like why that was. Many, many, many people have. I mean, in order to be part of our portfolio, if I, especially if I saw, if I made the investment, because we have people, other people make the investment on our team. Mm-hmm. But 130 companies after saying 6,000 plus, I made probably by myself 60% of those. The rest were made by team members or groups within our teams. So if you made it past that 2% mark with me, then you've impressed me. So let me think. Um, I think I like Uncharted Power's story. Uncharted Power, Jessica, uh, Jessica Matthews. She started years ago. She's a black woman. Started years ago by creating a soccer ball. And a jump rope, but the soccer ball caught my attention. It's a soccer ball that as you kick it, it generates energy. And so she had this thing where she, she created this, they built it. As you kick it, it generates energy. So there was a lot of kids playing with it and they took it back into their school and they were able to light up, charge your phone, do things like that. So I just thought, wow, that's so innovative and interesting. I love that. And then she had other things. So she had the jump rope and then she had like luggage as you pulled it, it charged your phone. And I've seen smart smart bags that don't do that, but try to, but that was a little above and beyond. And then what I liked about her was that she did have some missteps. She did have a hard time building that soccer ball at scale. She did have a hard time, you know, she, she went through the grit and the, she went through some stuff and she came out of it. She didn't give up. And she didn't, she kind of held her head high. She just made it work. And so what she does now is where I thought that soccer ball and those, those different items were impressive. What she said now was, now that I've gone through all of this, I'm going to go to the next level. So instead of charging just items, now we're going to generate energy from cities themselves, from people walking and living and breathing in cities. So now she has like a speed bump that as you go over it, it generates energy for light, the light post next to it. She has grids and all sorts of things that are being used in major cities around the world that have not even been announced yet and major corporations that have not been announced yet. She was invested in after we invested, twice we invested in her. After that, she was invested in by Disney. And I can only imagine, I know some of it, but I can only imagine what they have in mind, Disney with this. Mm-hmm. So she was just so impressive because her story could have been different. I don't know how it's going to end up. I still don't know. I mean, you could be listening to this in five years and things didn't work out, or you could be listening and she's a household name. I don't know. I'm already impressed. I'm already, we've already come to a point where I'm impressed by the fact that she could have given up. It could have been a story of where other people painted a narrative for her that she failed, quote unquote. I've been in there, so I know how bad that feels and how, um, irresponsible and unfair, I think it is, to say someone in mid-flight has failed. But she didn't. She just kind of had this grace of, you know what? No, I know who I am. See, you see this recurring theme too. It's like, I like people who are very 
understanding of who they are. They don't have to be super confident. You can build that over time, but just like finding out who you are is like the biggest gift you can give yourself. So I'm very impressed with her. I'm impressed by so many people that I could do this. I could do that same story for 130 companies, maybe 100, maybe 125. There, there are five in there that I might've missed the mark on, but I can do that story for a hundred plus companies. That's amazing. Yeah. It's really interesting sort of like hear you work backwards into like what it was. And I think we could do probably a full podcast and just all the different stories, mm-hmm. but we won't now. Switching gears a bit. One of the elements that I've loved from your story was it was sort of like these many times where, where people took a chance on you, right? Um, mm-hmm. You talk about Jeff, your tour manager, um, that time when you cold emailed uh, Jack Altman to get to Sam Altman and, and the story with Chris Saka. So for, for those who haven't read the book, can you share maybe one or two of those stories? And, and also, I'm curious, like, what did you learn from them that you still apply today? Yeah, there's, go uh, check out It's About Damn Time for a lot of these stories. Uh, Jeff Perrin was, the, was my kind of first major mentor in touring outside of the indie work that I did, kind of taught myself that indie stuff. And then he was the first one to give me a big break when it came to working on larger tours. He was CeeLo's tour manager. Um, he started out by tuning the piano of one of the Beatles in England <laughs> as a teenager. Um, oh, wow. Is, yeah, he, he just has an incredible story that spans from, he worked with um, New Edition back in the 80s. He tells these stories of when he had, like back then you didn't have any kind of smartphones or anything like that. You'd have to carry cash in a duffel bag on the tour bus. And he said he would stay up all night holding the cash with the gun in his hand until they got to the bank. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy stories. He's like this British guy who who sounds Australian because he's lived in Texas for 30 years. And he's worked with David Bowie and he's worked with Prince. And he had one time he helicoptered a, a piano into Prince's hotel room in London. I mean, the stories never stop with him. And I, he was one of the people that I reached out to after learning about him, doing my research and reaching out to several people. And he had a meeting with me and I don't, I have to talk to him. I, I'll probably put him on podcast and ask him what he saw in me, if he remembers, because it might've been that he just like, yeah, I'll just give her a chance, you know, but he gave me a chance and the book tells like how that all happened and I encourage you to listen to it or, or read it. But it was like so much happened after that. And I had to deliver it couldn't be just him giving me, getting me in the room because I would have been out of there within a couple of weeks. I mean, it was high pressure. I was thrown into the fire right away. And it was the same thing. I had studied. I had been preparing myself for so long. Not that I would know what to do in every occasion, but I was ready to kind of take on the challenge. I was gearing up for it. And it's part of the reason that I, I have less patience for people who don't do that than I think people think, you know, like I'm a nice person. I try to be kind. I do no harm. That's my, my mantra is do no harm if I can help it. And I am going to be very um, collaborative and, and helpful whenever I can, but I have very little tolerance for someone sitting there saying, you make it happen for me. I just kind of get, it triggers me because I've done so, so much to prepare for things so that when that luck happened where that opportunity was there, I was ready to meet it. And that was one example, but it's happened a lot happen a lot. I love that. I think, yeah, it's like when you're prepared, then luck can almost become destiny. Are there themes or things that you learn from him and, and other sort of like mentors that, that, that you still apply today? Yeah, with, with Jeff, it was definitely like the Karate Kid. <laughs> he was preparing me for things that I didn't understand at the time. And I was a little bit, um, I pushed against a little bit stubborn about it. And then I would notice like a year later why it was important. But what he, like overall, what he taught me was to not react super fast. 
like I'm a quick reactor and I, and I'm good at, usually I'm very good at doing that. And, and that's why I can do so much. But he, he did teach me like, I'm almost like a father figure. He kind of stepped in and said, you let everybody else in the room sort of react and you observe. And just have that stillness for a moment. Now, now, the way I'm saying it to you is very poetic. The way he got it across to me had a lot of F-bombs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and a lot of descriptive, colorful descriptions. But he was basically saying, you don't, just because I say do something doesn't mean you have to jump to do it. You need to observe, take it in, strategize and go. And I say these exact words to other people, to, to founders. In fact, I've said it probably this week. That you just, the more time you spend observing and strategizing, the more time you save and the less, uh, the fewer mistakes you make. And I learned that, I I learned that New Orleans on my first gig with him, because I was just, I was trying to impress him and I I didn't really know the lay of the land. And and I I had this one shot, I thought, and I was just jumping to attention. Anybody said something, I would do it. Boom, boom, boom. And that's kind of what you think you're supposed to do. And he was saying, that's great, but give it a beat because you're going to just be so much more effective, so much more. And I'll, I'll never forget that. And there were many, many of those. We were working together for several years. And I was, I was very honored and grateful to be able to come back and help him at the, towards the end of it when his father passed away and was not doing well. He was not doing well at this time, so he hadn't passed away yet. But I jumped in and, and kind of took over for him at a, at a major week-long event. And it was almost like everything he had prepared me for prepared me to do that. And it was just a really moving thing for me personally. I don't know. <laughs> Again, I don't know how he feels about it. He is very uh, cut and dried. That's such a beautiful story. And I certainly would love to have or hear you have him on your podcast and yes. ask about that. <laughs> so I know we're coming towards time. So this so last question, um, sort of like Thank wrap you. things up. Um, I know I, I love this line towards the end of the book where you talk about the sort of like difference between being a gatekeeper and keymaker and in this line, which is, I don't want to be the exception to the rule. I want the rules to accept me. So obviously you published this book um, for, for everyone listening. Like I'd be curious to sort of like hear like what's next for you and, and what is the change you want to make and how can people help support that? Yeah, I think what's next, it's a, such a moving, it's such a moving goal. And honestly, to be quite honest with you, I'm so I'm t- finally able to take in this moment and just realize through the writing the book, but more so it, releasing the book. Because when I was writing, it was like work. Releasing the book and getting so many people's different feedback points, what has touched them, has really given me a chance to reflect on the last decade of my life and the three decades that preceded that of how far I've come and how much has been done since I kind of just set out and said, I, w- I want to and I will. And so what I think I'm going to spend the rest of my, my life doing, I guess the next 40 years doing, is just making sure that I can catalyze as many other people to do the same. And I don't mean directly just investing in a bunch of people, which I will do. I also mean just motivating them. I mean, through the book already, I've already, the book's been out for just a few days, weeks, whatever, and I've already, a few days, and I've already got, received hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of individual messages saying that this sentence or this chapter or this part, this section has made me want to go and create a company or this helped me decide what I'm going to do with my current company that was stalled or this tells me what I'm going to do with my life, my career change, or I'm going to start this creative thing that I always wanted to do, or I'm going to back other founders. I mean, that I could do for the rest of my life and be quite, quite content. So it's a lot of that. 
more pointedly. We're going to turn backstage. We're going to just turn the gears up a little bit with backstage. You may not see it right away, but we are, I think I'm going to be able to help influence policy when it comes to a few things. You'll see some stuff happening there where using backstage as a case study rather than me just working on this for the rest of my life. We can be an example and we can also be kind of a jumping off for something greater, for the greater good. So I would like us to just be one piece of this huge puzzle that we that we see and we kind of back out of and look at it and it's really beautiful. And we were just this tiny little part of it that kind of helped kick things off. That is so amazing. And I'm certainly excited to see uh, it unfold. Um, All right. The book is, it's about damn time. And um, any last words before we wrap up? Yeah, like you can get it at itsaboutdamntime.com or anywhere you get your favorite books. I uh, recorded the audio version, which you're saying that you, you dig it. I, I loved it, yeah. <laughs> cool. And it's, it's pretty accessible. It's like, it's not going to be like this huge tome, you know, it, but it's, uh, it's people are, are having their lives at least affected, if not changed by it. And I don't want to be too up on my own supply, but I built it for that. You know, I, I, I created this book for this very reason and it's happening. So I just, I like to let people make sure they know that it's not a book about me. It's a book about them. And that, that's where I think the value is. That's amazing. And that's why we do all of this. Um, might be the perfect place to end. Thank you so much for doing this. It was, it was a huge pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Hey, it's Sachit again. If you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did, make sure you thank our guests and let them know what you thought. There's easy links to all of their social media, Twitter, Instagram, everything else in the show notes. Secondly, make sure you head on over to creators.show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and additional bonuses. See you next week.